0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Our celebration of the Style Council and the Honorary Councilors continues. Today it's the turn of the fabulous Billy Chapman. Now Billy played in the band Animal Nightlife in the 80s and Paul Weller loved this band. So much so that he invited Billy to play with the Style Council both on record and live in concert. So let's get into our final honorary counsellor for now. It's Billy Chapman. Hi, Billy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This podcast series, you are the seventh in a week's worth of podcasts of honorary counsellors. And we'll get into what that means for you and, and how you wear that badge of honour. First of all, I'd love to find out how you first discovered the music of Paul Weller. W- was it the
2: jam? Definitely was, yeah. I just left school and I was working in Holloway in uh, display design. I was doing music you know, my spare time as all the, the bands at the time who everybody had the posters on the boards, uh, the team, you know, the girls in the team and things like that. There they were um, all the bands and including the jam. And I was into the jam quite a lot, actually. And at the time, um, Set and Sons album, I liked. At that time, I was a bit younger, but I remember it very well. You know, that period of 79. So, yeah, <laughs> so, I was, so I was like most teenagers at the time, but you know into that sound, those sounds that were being played all around you know
1: and at which point
2: were you picking up
1: the sax and realizing that that was where you wanted to go in terms of a career
2: i'd been playing at um just before i left school in, at, at tollington park in finsbury park and I'd just been sort of dabbling with it, um, with guitars and saxes. And I just literally was a, bit of a, well, was a bit of a hobby, really, in a sense. I was with some friends doing football and I had friends that had been doing bands and it turned out to be quite well-known people at the time. And I was a bit younger and, and you know, it was just one of those things. It was in the air, put it that way. And I was playing football with some mates of mine and that was the early start of the band uh, when we were rehearsing in Camden Town. It was just in the air, you know, with all the punk thing that was happening. There's a lot there's a lot going on, and it just seemed to be a natural sort of thing amongst the all your mates and everything. It was just a normal sort of thing, really.
1: And the band that you mentioned was that was that band was Animal Nightlife.
2: Yeah, that's right. Before that, i have been sort of um dabbling with friends, you know, musically, uh here, here and there, um, and seeing bands. Um, well-known bands over the road I lived opposite the Rainbow in Flimsby Park you see so there was always bands on we were all like football mates really because everybody was going out and about in the West End and things like that everybody was starting bands basically and Animal Nightlife started like that really with mates from the East End and yeah it's quite an interesting sort of Opening up, really
1: very similar to the Style Council in the sense that it was a constantly evolving lineup, born out of the explosion of that dance and, and club culture in 1980. And Paul Weller absolutely loved this band.
2: That's right. We were at the end of that sort of period of five years when the new wave was moving on into something slightly slightly new, and there were loads of bands that were appearing around. And Weller loved us a lot with the sort of elements that were we were a mixed bunch of people in a sense of music styles and tastes. So like I was I was in the middle of Scar World and soul music and, and I love blues and jazz. And then we had other members that were sort of like X sort of new wave and all this sort of thing. We actually started like a punk sort of philharmonic, if you know what I mean. Nice. So went out as a name as the Milan Philharmonic at one point, which is just for a wind up. I equate it to more like the commitments. It's a bit like that. And so there was an interesting mixture of of sounds and people, you know. So we just started and and it all sort of evolved I mean hanging around the clubs you know I was one of the younger lads out, of the, out of the lot you know a lot of people that were in, that became influential later on in the, in what was happening you know difficult to explain really but there was so many things going on at the time you know
1: and it feels like yesterday but actually we're talking 40 years ago now so I appreciate that it might be difficult <laughs> to remember every single moment of the stuff that I'm going to quiz you about but, um, <laughs> but but the songs that we're talking about Native Boy Mr. Solitaire love is just a great pretender and yeah. I was watching I was watching a clip top of the pops too there was a clip and they were talking yeah. about how um i think it was mr solitaire got this got this rush of sales and they, and how they i don't know if you've seen this clip it says there was a rush of sales from short-sighted jam fans who thought yeah. that paul waller was paul weller so basically the band was your band was andy polaris on vocals um leonardo um, chignoli on bass steve brown on guitar you on sax and paul waller on drums but actually paul was on that track wasn't he didn't he do backing vocals?
2: Yes. Um, what happened? There was a few other members in the band as well. We, we had quite a few members, There were people like Mac and John, and and and, and, and you know Steve, as uh, another people as well. The, the band kind of merged from a larger group of people, you see, as it went along. So, but going back to the point you said, there, um, Paul Waller, yeah. What we had, we had a situation with Paul's. Obviously, his name. There was a bit of a cross reference mistake, but there. Paul Weller decided to sing on one of our singles, and to pay back the, you know, sort of vice versa compliment. We were kind of like it was a mutual appreciation thing going on, you know. Right. So he did actually sing on one of one of the backing vocals at the time. So,
1: so, so the fans weren't that short-sighted. But DC Lee sang with with your band on occasions as well.
2: Absolutely. Before Paul, uh, she joined uh, Star Council. She was one of our backing vocalists. D. Um, and so she was going going out live with us. And then she sort of moved over to the Style Council early days. So, yeah, that was quite interesting because I've got some amazing photographs of Dee in Madrid with us on the tubeways of Madrid when we were doing really, we were doing like really well over in Spain at the time. And it's just incredible to, to think, you know... Um, also young, of course, but uh, she looks amazing. And, um, she, you know, she was, she, I mean, we played Ronnie Scott's with DC Lee as well.
1: And what was yeah. it about Dee that's special? Because you, obviously you then work with the Style Council, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we've not touched yeah. on Dee a huge amount on this podcast so far, which seems nuts. But, I mean, yeah. she's a very, very special singer, isn't she?
2: Yes, she is. I mean, she she has the qualities that, you know, that I personally was very much into. You know, the, a lot of the, the sort of cross- across the pond as they say you know the, the the american and the british thing you know and she had a lot of qualities there you know it was just the right the right fit really she was she was she had a lovely lot of nice qualities there i think with mm. i mean i don't know what she's doing as so much these days in the sense of material she's into but at the time you know it was it was seemed the right sort of thing and it was a good time you know with a, a lot of those mixes of the types of music and things you know so how did the
1: crossover come for you working with the Style Council? Because that journey between the two bands continues all the way through because your band continued till 88. The Style Council continues till till 89 and that, that final Rejected House album. Yeah. So there's obviously a crossover where you're playing in both bands to an extent. How did Paul poach you over to the other side?
2: I believe there was something in what I was doing, you know, with the expressions, I suppose. There was a colour to what I was playing. I think he believed in my ability and I felt very complimented and very proud to be part of that very early start well it was a bit at the beginning really Mm. because we were all sort of starting with these newer sounds or experimenting with newer sounds and i think those are the areas that make people it makes you sort of think of a road ahead i think so i think with my sort of elements there was like most players at the time, was at the very early sort of start points. So you know, I was just one of many, really. But I think I just think we fitted uh, with a direction. We was all basically going out as people in the nightclubs and that as well. That was part of the with uh, all kind of like sort of association and friends and things. You know, there's a lot of that going on as well. Meeting up in London in the in the clubs and bars and stuff. So there's a bit of that going on as well. Can you remember the first time that you were in the studio with Paul? Pretty much on the Cafe Blur album. Well, I remember doing the the two tracks I did. So this is Miss Ship Came In, which for those, so so Café
1: Blair" is the debut album from the Style Council in the US. It was not called that. It was called My Ever-Changing Moves in the US. And that track, uh, Miss Ship Came In, isn't on the US version. So our US listeners, um, of which there are three, um, (laughs) our US listeners may not know that track, but you also played on Dropping Bombs on the White House.
2: And the track was done before the name. Because Paul, being quite an a, a amazing, prolific writer, he would, you know, he would just be. We were just doing it all as it was happening in the studio. I just blew in the studio. I just remember just blowing whatever I could off the t- in the studios. <laughs> on the fly. Really. So, yeah. I mean, look back in it now. I mean, it was quite um, it was quite a wonderful thing to be in a studio of that quality as well. I mean, we're talking Solid Bond, right? You know, I, I just enjoying the process, to be honest with you. It was just great, you know.
1: Our Favourite Shop is another album that comes around a, a couple of years, or no, a year later, which is massive, and many people consider it to be their best work, their finest work. And you yeah. played on the track, this is a real rarity as well, which Steve White, a so the drummer, Steve White's part of the Style Council, wrote the lyrics for, With Everything to Lose.
2: Yes, that was the soundtrack that became Ever Had It Blue on the Absolute Beginners film. Yeah, so it had with everything to lose. And I remember watching Steve doing his drumming, literally standing there. It was very really impressive, you know, uh, his jazz, jazz techniques and things. I blew a solo, and I remember Gil Evans, with famous Miles Davis arranger and producer, he, he was doing all the horns and stuff on the film arrangements for the film. So it doubled up as a soundtrack as well as a, as a track on the album. So for the film... Uh, all the all the bands like Sharda and that everybody had a, a contender for the soundtrack and so the whole of London and P- Plus was involved in that one so pretty much it was the same thing but like going back to the actual recording of it I thought it sounded great and I was very very proud to have been involved with that one no, it's
1: a, a terrific song and, and again our favourite shops was called Internationalist in the US for our three US listeners but there's a lovely clip of you on Terry Wogan which is the uh, which is Have You Ever Had It Blue actually talking about that where the band are, it's the white Levi Jeans There's the brass section. I've got a feeling the female vocalist was from Animal Nightlife as well, replacing D.C. Lee at the time. I don't know if you can remember this clip where Steve White is essentially playing drums standing up at the
2: time. Yeah. uh, Well, I've got some sort of vague memories of it. But, yeah, there was a lot of – the track sounded fantastic. And I I think, really, uh, the best version I like of it is the live one at the Wembley when we did it live. And I was just uh, had to go and blow a solo uh, on in front of the, the band uh, which is an orchestra with, with all the horns and that. I think it was Mike Mower was playing uh, flutes and things and it was just, I felt amazed by that and it was just an incredible feeling for me to be playing Wembley with uh, with that moment, with that piece of music. And I think you're right when you say it captured the mood. I think when you when I think of the Star Council, I think of those qualities like that.
1: Many of our honorary councillors have talked about the fun of the band and and the fact that it felt like a bit of a youth club at times has come up because so many of the band were we're really young like 17, 18. But did it feel that way for you as well when you entered into the, into the live arena and started playing with the band on tour?
2: Well, yeah, because you're talking, I was so impressed with being part of it. You know, it was like, like, is this actually Paul Weller, if you know what I mean? It's a bit like that really. Cause I was, we were just like normal kind of getting on with it. But then you suddenly realize that you, when you go out and do something, that this is like the guy from the jam, you know, and so you, you forget that you're talking in, in normal, in normal ways. And suddenly, you know, you, you're just talking music and getting on with it. When we did the, we we were just like really experimental, I suppose. We all kind of were trying to be, as like you do when you're in your, you're around 19 years of age or so. You know, you're trying to go with the reality of it as well as the. And I remember just sitting down, just thinking, this is incredible. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to handle half of it because it was like it was all brand. You know, it was on a bigger scale, of course, and you know the equipment was was there, and it's just like wow, you know, and the sound, of course. Yeah, we. I mean, I remember thinking the rehearsal studio was just incredible for me. You know, it was, it was on a scale that i would never experienced before. So, you know, with all the space and the and the and the, and the PA and everything. Yeah, I think what was nice was that we'd all be sort of joking about most of the time. You know, you'd have a it was a kind of nice, relaxed feel about the whole thing looking back on it, it's just one of those things that happens, isn't it? you just sort of, those those people are all kind of, we're kind of all etched in each other's lives now in, in that way. It's
1: magical. The, I mean, the honorary councillor badge is one that you, you wear with pride, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. I, I, I mean, I kind of, whatever I do in music, when someone mentions the nightlife and bar council time for myself, it was, I feel very proud, especially when you get things like, your, when I did the sax on You're the Best thing, and it's been used, I mean, I've known people who own restaurants and bars, and they got married with this song, and they say, you didn't play that, and I said, I know, I'm like the bloody, I feel just so honoured, you know, to have been part of that song, you know, the, the seven-inch single, that is, that was, I mean, I, I didn't get that. I mean, I just like, just go along with it, oh yeah, great, you know, and it's always oh, like, can you please play it, and all this, I've had all that sort of thing of it, you know. <laughs> I should have asked you to go and get your sax. <laughs> Damn it! Well, you know, <laughs> another day, Dan. Another day. I did a reunion with um Anthony Hardy, the bass player in Coventry, with him, and in one of his birthdays, I think it was, and a few years back, we did a reunion, and I played with him that those songs. The Hazel O'Connor Corner were there and a few of the specials and things like that, and they were having a kind of they had a kind of a reggae sound, which is pretty amazing. It just sounded as fresh then as it did back in all those years ago. You know, I loved that. That was great. You know,
1: the great thing about your time as well is that I think there were during the Style Council's existence. There's been subsequent stuff, but there were um, there were three live products released, a home and abroad which was all the tracks taken from the Internationalist Tour, essentially, which was a live LP. There was also, you mentioned um, Wembley Arena, there was also this live um, VHS at the time, and also CD video, whatever that is, which was Showbiz, which was 1984. And and then you also on Far East and Far Out, which was the council meeting in Japan. So the three takes of the live stuff, have you on it, which which must be amazing because you've got a record of that too.
2: You know, I look at myself as a young person walking out in such a situation thinking, uh, how did that happen? I have no idea. Um, In a sense, you couldn't plan, you know. But there's a lot to it that's quite, quite good. I mean, I used to play the whole Point of No Return with soloing with Paul, you know, and I felt you know, we just just improvised, you see. I, I'm quite a big auditorium, just an improvisation there. And I felt very, the problem for me was I wouldn't stop playing. <laughs> so it was like, I, I, you know, I'm typical saxophone, so I'll play, you know, I'll just keep just keep playing until you're coming to shut up, basically. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm quite proud of that. You know, it was just purely a musical thing. You know, it was a lovely, enjoyable experience. You know, I was only young, and, you know, we're all, we're all so young, and you're trying to keep confident in such a situation. It's been great. So, yeah, I get a lot of comments from people, you know, all this time later, you know.
1: Well, Showbiz is... There are clips of Showbiz on YouTube, so if people want to check it out. it's um One of the things for me, the Showbiz Wembley Arena stuff, it's such a good look. You know, Paul's got yeah. this sharp haircut, D, the white beret, the jackets that you all got, the white Levi's, yeah. all in blazers, yeah. there's strings, there's horns. It's a great sound, but it's also a great look, isn't
2: it? You know, when things get to... Scale of success. I mean, I, I suppose you you don't know whether it's where it is in the timeline until retrospectively when you look back on it. Mm-hmm. But that was a real peak of a moment, I think, because everybody was obviously looking, you know, the part and everything. And it was the sort of it meant to be. It was it's one of those meant to be moments, I think, and it still stands the test of time, right? The sound. Could you imagine the sound? I mean, that was a live recording, so you, you know, and the, all the players were, were fantastic, you know, the line and everything, you know.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. And it's
2: incredible that, well, I
1: mean, one minute you were playing the clubs in Europe, the next is the big stadiums in Japan and the US and, you know, Wembley Arena, like I say, it's incredible that, and and in a really short period of time, but you you all sound so tight together, but you all look like you're having fun, but it it all works because of the quality of the songs, doesn't it?
2: Yes, it does. So, I mean, you know, when you realise what you're dealing with, with material, the lines that were written, you know, the, the horn lines. I mean, I remember, I mean, can you imagine standing behind Paul Weller with Long Hot Summer and he's playing the Moog and he's playing, you know, the old seventy, 70 synth <laughs> on the bass line. And yeah. it's just, and you just thinking, what a moment, you know what I mean? And I look back at it now, it's one of the greatest moments ever is Paul Weller playing a Moog bass on the synthesizer, you know. I've got photographs, Dan, of when we were rehearsing for the doing the sound checks and stuff. And I've got people dancing and laughing and joking. Uh, they're just amazing photographs. And, you know, I've got to mention that because I was taking loads of photos at the time. I got a camera as a present, and I was into this photography thing as a bit of a hobby, so I was taking pictures, and um, I don't want to sound too, what's the word, and make a thing out of it, but it, I'm glad I did now, because I've archived some great moments in, in imaging there, yeah. uh, uh, behind the scenes, you know, in TVs and, and uh, studio stuff. And Yeah, it's just great to look back on it when you think of all the places you played, you know, Sheffield, I'm talking about the Sheffield Leadmill and I'm quite proud of that one because we played Move On Up, right? You know, you go from Japan to the heart of the UK. You know, these are the places about the heart of the UK for me because we played, I mean, Nightlife played Hacienda in Manchester, you know, just two weeks after Madonna played it with a single holiday. So the whole of the UK was buzzing. All the cities were buzzing with all the bands. And so when you get catapulted into... The other stuff, which is going to Paris or you know Japan and, and, and the States, like Los Angeles, because we played the Wilshire Theatre in LA, for example, which was yep. amazing for me. That's apparently that's where they discovered Judy Garland. So I'm very, I'm like, wow, are you serious? <laughs> you know, so I mean, I've got some lovely images there of that, you know, and I just think back and, and yeah, it's fantastic. You're talking like the photographs are like a capture of time at uh, that period of time, you know, and driving into New York, you know, uh, coming off the airport, you know, I've got photographs I and mean, you. You just think I'm sitting in the van going to New York with the Style Council, and when we came out of the hope, this is a nice story. This one, we had um, we had these USA mods turn up, and they were following the van. You know, mods on scooters following the van with no helmets on, right? Because you have to wear helmets. And we up the back, they up the back of the door of the van, and just was making gestures and all this sort of thing. That's one of the greatest memories I have, actually. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> You know being followed by all these like these mods, like um, with parkers and uh, the Americans, you know, it was just oh, great. And um,
1: remember Pat Gilbert talking to me about the this idea of modernism being, um, you know, being a mod, being an individual, and then actually yeah. what you'd end up with would be hundreds of kids with the same haircut and all in parkers.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I was more of a soul lad mixture of things. We were, a bit, I was a bit of a mixture of things, I mean, you know, I had influences from all my mates from different things. I was a bit of the right mixed up. I went from. A cropped scar lad to something else within two or three years, you know, and then that bleached hair, another with another, you know, I and mean, so on. So, we all, when you're young, and then the mod thing, I mean, obviously, you know, it meant slightly different things. But I think what was great about it was that sort of like British youth, or let's put it that way, was really spot on, I think, in lots of ways at that time. And I don't want to sound too whatever, but it, I, I think looking back on it, we, we, we were quite fortunate, you know, uh, our, our generation sort of thing.
1: I was reading the. I don't. I don't know if you've read the Soul Deep book yet. And there's some. I mean, there's so much content in there. It's, it's one of those. One of those beautiful books where you open it up with almost. Like, I don't know. Uh, like, like snooker referee or um, snooker umpire gloves that you don't want. to do You know what I mean. You don't want to spoil any second of it. It's. I can only open it when the kids yeah. are in bed. It's like bugger off. Don't come anywhere near it with your grubby hands. Um, it's lovely. But there's one thing I hadn't realised was just how many benefits and CMD gigs and the red wedge and all of that stuff. There was. The amount of gigs that you were doing um, as part of that as well was remarkable.
2: Yeah, I think the feeling then was a feeling of change, put that way. I mean, when you get older, you can overanalyze things. But when you're young, you just want to see a bit of change, really. And some of the perceived injustices of certain things, I suppose. You know, the stupidity of war. You know, it's the usual youthful... You address those areas, don't you? But I look back on it now and some of it I just think, well, on a Like we was in the middle of the minor strike and we got stopped on the on the motorway because they thought we were that this is true, right? They thought they were flying tickets, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's all that I mean, you're in the middle of the entire climate of the time, you know, as a band going through the middle of it, driving through the middle of it really, in a Yeah. Sense.
1: It's, and it's hard to explain to people if you're not if you weren't within I mean, I was a young kid then, so it's very difficult for me to understand some of that as well. Um and certainly the early eighties, you know, I was born in seventy five. So it's quite hard to get your head around this and you but you but
2: You're obviously young, Dan, I don't believe that. Seventy five. I'm sixteen in 70, 78. So my youth was spent coming out of the seventies into pretty much a polarized world then. There's no don't forget we didn't have the, the context of we didn't have any of the what we've got today, you know, obviously.
1: The other thing for you is that you played on the cost of loving. So the orange album, the controversial orange album in in terms of, or at least in terms of the cover, but um, maybe in terms of record sales, but heavens above is one of the tracks. I love that album. I think it's brilliant. I have to say there's you, um, there's Anne Stevenson on violin, there's Kamel Hines on bass, um, Steve Sidelink on congers of all things. Yeah. What do you remember about recording heavens above?
2: Well, I remember, I remember all the players. I remember being there, I'm trying to get a memory. You'd have to jar my... It's somewhere parked in the back of my mind about the actual studio the moment. But I remember speaking to Camille um, I was very impressed with what they were doing, with what, what everybody was putting down, you know. I think it was, a gen, it was a genuine sort of effort to do a really good thing, you know, it was, there was always that feeling, you know. That what happened with my, my world, I was wrapped up in animal nightlife, you see. I've, been, I've done an album and that, and been to the States and things like this. So my focus at that time, and my, I, I become a dad at the age of 24, I think, or 86, yeah. My world was taken over with being a dad at that round about that time, and also the band Nightlife was doing pretty well touring. Yeah. This. And so I was wrapped up in that world a lot more than the Style Council world at that that time. Although and then I got invited in to do what you said I did, which is I remember meeting Camille and Steve obviously and doing some work with them as I did, you know.
1: Yeah, you're right because you were gearing up for a second album, weren't you, as Animal Nightlife? I know Island Records, you were a part of Island Records, you know, from '84. And and didn't they send you off to Philadelphia? Was that right?
2: Yes, we did, and I'm very proud that You've mentioned that, mate. That was because don't forget this all this sort of thing was 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 all our dream, you know, when you're glad when you're in your team. And suddenly you're doing all the music like Style Council and whatever. So your dreams coming alive. And um, we went to Philadelphia. We went to the studios in Philly. Um, what's the name of it now? So was it Philly Sounds or something? Philly like that? Sounds. That's it. The famous. Yeah. Thing. It's There's it's it's Philly World and Philly Sounds, and I always get them mixed up. Yeah, that studio was. I mean, it was parked right next to, pretty much a, a motor a, a motorway, like a red brick building. And you'd walk in there and it was a major, major culture shock for me. And because and, Philadelphia uh, was a different Philadelphia to, to today. But um, we were kind of like, you know, London coming with, with all these sort of love of, of what Philadelphia, you know, the music coming yeah. at that place is amazing. So, yeah, you know, it was just an incredible experience. Yeah. So the producers were spot on. The Bobby Elias and all these people—they're they're all the top people. that have done some amazing work with all the, and we had, um, you know, Sissy Houston involved in vocals and things like that. So wow. you're right—you're right in the heart of what what's going on in Philadelphia, you know.
1: And presumably, Island Records—they sent you there to what—to soak up the, the Philly sound or, or to work with those producers, I'm guessing.
2: Yep, exactly that. We were walking in, for example, the conversations would start and, what, and they said, oh, we, we, we did all that sort of 25, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you know. So there, there was a bit of a mistake. Uh, uh, where is it that we were trying to get at was, was things they've done in the past. So when you see them doing that on the mixes and some of the sound they were getting, it's just like, wow. Uh, and this, this is non-digital as well so the studio engineering was we had three I think two or three sets of producers we sort of like go from one studio to the other studio it was just what an experience I can't, it completely changed me as a musician working in that in that environment because the positivity w- was something else you know I felt completely lifted as a person as a player you know because who wouldn't be you're working with some great producers we always talked about certain people of course it was everybody's impressing who they do and what they've done we needed a vibe For example, and backing vocals, and they got a Sissy Houston in to do some backing vocals, Family of Whitney, and all this sort of stuff. And then you've got, and I look back and it it was um, a, a vibes player, Vince Montana. Now Vince Montana did um, heavy vibes was a big record in, in the London clubs at that period. When he turned up in his I think he had a Cadillac <laughs> and, he, and he, he opened the boots and he had this he helped him in with great big set of vibes. And I went, My God, it's Vince Montana. <laughs> it was like it was just fantastic, you know. Could you imagine? I mean, you're like you hear these records and then you meet this man. And it's like this big American guy, you know, just standing there playing this beautiful vibes. Well, I was like, shook my head in disbelief at some of it now. Because we were all young and, you know, we were all sort of trying to be whoever we were trying to be, you know, as individuals in a band, you know, you know what it's like. Everybody's doing their takes and things. And it was quite an interesting looking back on it and that studio is quite legendary now, apparently.
1: And post-Style Council, for Paul, how have you felt about his material? We're on the cusp of another, yet another brand new album, Fat Pop, just around the corner. And how have you felt about Paul in a solo capacity? And what's life been like for you since? What have you been up to since the Style Council and Animal
2: Nightlife? From a point of view of um, Paul Weller's writing, obviously he's always going to be writing, prolific, great prolific writer. I mean, he can't, you know, he's without saying really. I liked the... um, the pebbles on the beach material. I love all that. And I think really it's just like we've all got our own taste, haven't we? So there are things that you could say, well, not for me, you know. I'd like to hear the last thing he's just recently been doing. Um, I'm interested to see what it's gonna be this new one's gonna be, to be honest with you. So yeah, I think there's always gonna be a surprise there, which is what I think is about. He always likes to look move up, move on and do something new or try to diffuse fuse something new. This is what the industry needs. It needs to feel a refreshing look at things, especially with what's been going on in the last few years, I think. Um, Some of the industry's output, you know, I'd like to think there's a bit of a flag being waved with weather. you know, you know what I mean? All the time, to remind everybody, you know, because we, I think that needs to be done for a lot of young people coming up. But anyway, going uh, for myself, I just worked, I just went off and did loads of different bands. I've been Ghanaian bands uh, which was like a fella coochie type band i did that for a while through the 90s and that and into the you know i just kept hopping to different bands really Done a lot of writing with people on projects that people don't really know anything about and i'm still playing i've been playing i've got into jazz i've had a jazz quartet played blues and jazz mainly i've been in the southwest i've played in jazz clubs in the southwest and bristol and plymouth i'd like to think that with all what's been going on it's kind of like a full circle but that's what it feels like for me, anyway. Strangely enough, I've been forced to do things I would never have considered doing in the past. Floyd, pick Floyd material. There's a lot of there's a lot of areas there that you sort of think I would never do that normally. But you, when you're forced to do things to make a living, it puts you in a, a whole new group or and no, those new genres of understanding. And that's I haven't really listed it all, but it's, it's quite an unusual like reggae. I've done reggae bands, ska bands, soul bands. I was with a soul band for about two years with really good horn section, pumping horn sections. And is the photography still a thing? Yes, it is. I'm glad you said that because I've been doing that sort of thing for quite a long time, and I've got some images of that I'm going to get done, put out on the website for the Style Council stuff is definitely going out there. I've got some brilliant images, photographs of D, photographs of Paul Weller. When he, I've got some real sort of like, wow, that's the moment there, isn't it?
1: That can, it's, yeah, and it's that Candice stuff, isn't it, that you don't see very often of just... The behind the scenes, the, the moments where they're off.
2: I've got a photo of Paul Weller, which I, I, if one I want to show people, I said, How did you get that? It was on a coach. I was just snapping out the window, like I was, and I just turned around. He was going to the loo, one of the loos in the coach, and he was had a cigarette in his mouth. He turned around, and looked at me, and I just clicked it. If you see this image, it's like, it's so iconic. You're thinking, My God. It's, like, it's just like, couldn't have planned it. You know, it's just a completely off the cuff moment. And the animal nightlife stuff with with D and, and, and dancing on the underground in in uh, in madrid is just beautiful, you know.
1: You need to get that out to every to the fans as soon as possible, and um, and make a few quid as well.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I need. Mean, well, don't we all? I mean, you know, it's just it. But uh, the thing is, I'd, I'd like to put the, all done in the right sort of way as well. You know, yeah. see, to me, I you know the Jam fans and the Style Council fans are kind of like two groups in a sense they intermingle i suppose but
1: it's funny isn't it because for some there's a real cut off and that's absolutely fine i'm not criticizing because i feel that the jam was for so many it was like that's their band and when that split it was like yeah music almost ending it's like i'm you know i'm not interested in Weller from the star counts or the solo it was just the jam for me and then others didn't like the jam love the star counts sort of enjoyed some of the solo stuff since it's, it's great that people have just you know you can pick and choose whatever it's absolutely fine for me
2: i'm like yourself i don't have an issue with any of it it's all it's all It's all part of the uh, thing that this country is great at putting out, really. You know, I'm very proud of that, you know.
1: Well, no, you should be. And I love the fact, you know, like I say, for you, the honorary councillors and this badge of honour as part of that is it all links into the story because the Style Council without you guys isn't the Style Council as far as we're concerned. So, Billy, this has been lovely. I've got two final questions for you, if that's all right. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council, or Paul Weller solo. Which one are you going to go for? Um. Let me give you the second question to give you some thinking time. Um So the point of this podcast is obviously to have a conversation with Paul at the end of the series, the conversation I never managed to have in my radio career. Um I gave that career up 10 years ago with that one regret, never getting to interview Paul Weller. If that happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there a question that you think I
2: should ask him? Wow. It's a very personal thing as well as a, as a very professional thing at the same time. So I don't know which one to choose. Well, the personal thing, I mean, I know that, you know, we were kind of part of a family thing there, you know, and in that sense. Relationships were quite were quite good, you know, in that sense. I've got great memories of his dad, for example, you know, great and very funny man, you know, hilarious his dad was. And I just hope that he's still got that Think he's all right as a person, really, you know, feeling of some of those peers of time were the great, great thing really it's so difficult to say on a professional level I suppose it's just keep it keep it going you know just just keep putting out these great material really that's what it's all about really
1: what about a song any ideas
2: I like things like Head Start for Happiness and Long Hot Summer from the Style Council thing Head Start
1: for Happiness wraps it completely lovely because Hillary picked that same song <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a sax- is that a sax player's dream <laughs>
2: well I think it's one of the songs that I really enjoyed playing you know it had When you played that live, I threw another one, Move On Up. But then again, that's not Style Cancer, that's Curtis Mayfield. But that was a great memory for me with the Sheffield thing, you know. Because I can imagine the Sheffield lead was rocking when we played Move On Up. I mean, it's like, for me as a player, that was like, what? That was like Curtis Mayfield. You know, with Paul Weller playing that, and the place was, was, was literally bouncing, you know.
1: Move On Up is one that will please the Jam fans as well, because obviously it was on the um, the Beat Surrender um, EP, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: Well, that was one of one of the greatest moments for me, was playing Move On Up, really. We had a couple of extra players on that, that gig, on the, on the Red Wedge stuff. We had a few extra players, you know, that were involved as well. You know, the guy from... Marth and the Smiths and things like that and there was other players you know I I remember things like that you know and it was just got a real mixture of well-known people you know it's just fantastic but that I remember that night thinking listen you're not going to but you're not going to get much better than that
1: <laughs> so, Billy this has been amazing it's been so lovely to chat to you thank you so much for your time I really really appreciate it man no,
2: thank you for the invite Dan I appreciate uh, I mean my mind is like spinning you know <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you'll be coming back to me all week going oh there's
1: this thing I remember this and this and this
2: <laughs> well that's it you've done un- a department of memories there it's ridiculous you don't realise until you start talking about it you know you-, <laughs> you could go on and on and on couldn't you really but all I can say is I've got some fantastic memories of that and I'm really proud to have been an honorary counsellor as the others have been I'm sure you know hey Billy thanks a lot man thanks a lot take care man
1: that was lovely my thanks once again to Billy Chapman so we've made it seven podcasts in seven days and a celebration of probably the best pop group in the world the Style Council my thanks to the teams at Soul Deep Stuart Snowy and Steve Plus, Mr. Call's dream, Ian Mum. Their books help so much with the research, I have to say. Now, next up, I'm joined by Neil Jones from the Stone Foundation, a band who have worked so collaboratively with Paul in recent years, whether it's him producing their album, singing on some real standout songs. You are going to love this one. Neil is fabulous. So make sure you subscribe. And don't forget to share these episodes on social media. Leave a review wherever you get your podcast. It really, really does help us to find new listeners to the show. Check in on Twitter, at WellerFam. Podcast. Let us know what you're liking. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time.